everybody has a sheet. You guys want to stand with me? <laughs> Thanks for bearing with us with this new location and everything. Um, I was just thinking this morning, it's nice to be in nature and think about the glory of God that it reveals and but how that's different than his word, that it also reveals the glory of God. So we get to worship God through his word this morning. So if you want to repeat it, um, we'll do the call to worship this morning from Psalm 118. I'll read the bold section if you guys will read with me the italicized section. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So join with me in singing Rock of Ages. Number five. Or four, sorry. Rock of ages, wrath for me, let me hide myself in
Confession of sin this morning is from Romans 7. This is where Paul is wrestling with his own sinfulness, as we often do. And so, these are the words of Paul. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So we can relate to the Apostle Paul with this question. As we struggle with our own sinfulness, we can sometimes cry out with this cry, who will deliver us? Who will save us? And so we come this morning confessing our sin before God and um, acknowledging it before a holy God. So if you'll, if you'll read with me um, the prayer of confession. Lord God, eternal and almighty Father, we acknowledge before you that we are poor sinners, unable of, on our own power to do good. We have violated your holy commandments. But, O oh Lord, with heartfelt sorrow we repent and turn away from all our offenses. Have compassion on us, most gracious God, Father of mercies, for the sake of your Son, Jesus our Lord. And in removing our guilt, by the grace of your Holy Spirit, produce in us the fruit of holiness and righteousness, pleasing in your sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord.
gladly Paul doesn't leave us with this question for too long at the beginning of the next verse. He answers this question of who will deliver me from this body of death. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So the law apart from Christ only condemns us. It only shows us our sin. But in Christ fulfilling the law, our condemnation is removed. So we can be assured this morning that for those that are trusting in Christ, that we can have true assurance, true rest in what Christ has done, not what we've done. So would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you for this beautiful morning, this time that we get to see your work of creation and um, the trees and the breeze and the sun that day and night pours forth speech that glorifies you. And at the same time, we are thankful for your special grace, for your word, that you have revealed yourself to us. You have not left us to our own devices to, um, to work our way up to you, that you have come down in the person and work of Christ and have made a way for sinful people to dwell with the Holy God. So we rest in Christ this morning. We rest in the work of the cross, and we trust that um, you who have began a good work in us will bring it to completion. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So our confession of sin this morning is um, from the Heidelberg Catechism. And like, we, like we've said before, confession of faith is where we come together and publicly proclaim true things about our faith, not only to remember them, but to um, proclaim them. And so um, a question that we can often get asked is, do good works earn us salvation, right? Uh, do I need to do enough things, good things, to work my way up to God? And the answer that came out of the Reformation was that it was by grace alone, through faith alone. And so the question that might come up is, why do we still need to do good works? Is it to earn God's favor? Is it to pay a debt to Him? And so this question is trying to answer this question. So if you'll read with me, I'll read the bold section if you'll read um, the answer. The question is this, since we have been delivered from our misery or our guilt by God's grace alone through Christ and not because we have earned it, why then must we still do good works? The answer is because Christ has redeemed us by his blood and by his spirit. is also renewing us to be like himself so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living, others may be won to Christ. Amen. Okay, if you guys want to turn with me to Acts 4, if you have scripture, um, maybe on your phone or whatever. We've been going through the book of Acts. I can't believe we're at chapter 4 already. Uh, we've been trying to answer beginning we tried to answer the question of what is the book of Axel about you know there's a lot of misconceptions that it's merely just historical right that it's just telling us stories about Peter did this Paul did this and that's all it is it's all it's only stories or some people say um, that it's just good moral teaching right Peter was courageous in front of the people you need to be courageous or Peter prayed a lot, you need to pray a lot. And so we've tried to zoom out a little bit and see what the author of, the, um, of Acts has to say about it, namely Luke, um, that this is not just the acts of people, but this is really the acts of the risen Lord. He said at the beginning that the gospel of Luke 
is all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the implication is that the book of Acts, also written by Luke, is all that Christ continues to do and teach from heaven, from his throne. And so we've looked at some big events in the first couple chapters. We've looked at Pentecost. We've looked at um, Peter's spirit-filled sermon after Pentecost, pointing to Christ. And then in these last couple weeks, we looked at, um, in chapter 3, we see the healing of the lame beggar. So this man that was lame for 40 years is miraculously healed by Peter. He says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have in the name of Christ, raise up and walk. And this causes a crowd to gather around Peter and John. And finally, Peter preaches another sermon and he points to Christ. He says, it's not our power, it's not our piety that has done this, it's the power of the risen Lord. And um, he also points out their guilt, that they should have known this, that they should have not killed the Savior, but they should have worshipped him. And so this week we're going to see the first story really in the book of Acts where opposition starts to happen. So there's been this healing, Peter's preached this sermon, but then we start to see opposition from the religious leaders of the day. And so our mind can be thinking of Peter a little bit as we look at this text of this is not the first time Peter has faced opposition for the name of Christ. If you remember in the Gospels, he was asked three times if he knew the Lord, and he denied the Lord three times. And so there's sort of this tension building of how is Peter going to respond? Is he going to deny the Lord? Is he going to forsake the name of Christ? Is the gospel going to stop being preached because of fear or all these things? And so we'll look at that today. So I'm going to pray. We'll kind of read the passage as we go, and we'll try to glean some things from it. Dear Lord, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for your word, not only for your general revelation in nature, but your special revelation in giving us your word. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning by your spirit, that you would give us strength and um, help us to have faith this morning, to trust in the completed work of Christ and give us boldness this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Like I said, we're going to try to break this down. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 22. It's really four sections. Verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the disciples arrested. Verses 5 through 7, we're going to see them questioned. And then in verses 8 through 12, we're going to see the disciples give an answer to the question. And then finally, we'll look at the officials try to silence these disciples. So, verses 1 through 4, we see the disciples arrested. It says this, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests... And the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So it says, as they were speaking, these, these priests, these captains of the temple, these Sadducees, came to them and says they were greatly annoyed. So they don't like this message. And there's a couple reasons for that. The Sadducees, as we learn in the Gospels, they denied the resurrection totally. And so Peter and John preaching this message of resurrection is, is totally against what they believe. They deny the resurrection wholeheartedly. And you can look at that in Matthew 22. You can see this interaction where they try to entrap Jesus in his words. So they, they deny the resurrection, but they also were under the authority of the Romans at that time. And so they're trying to play political games. They don't want to upset their Rome, the Romans. And so out of fear of man, 
in fear of losing their power, they arrest the disciples. So we see that in verses 1 through 4, for no reason. And then we see them questioned in verses 5 through 7. It says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? And if you look with me at verse 5, I just wanted to point this out. I think it's kind of interesting. So, verse 5, it says that the rulers and the elders and the scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And, again, our kind of Old Testament siren should be going off a little bit. And I'm convinced of this because if you look at verse 26, so turn or scroll to verse 26 in the same chapter, Peter quotes Psalm 2, which says this, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, or Christ there. So it's just sort of interesting. Luke is sort of laying the groundwork for this coming accusation that, that these rulers think that they're gathering um, together to do good when actually they're setting themselves against Christ and against his people. And we know that this enmity between the seed of the serpent, if you will, the, the evil, and um, the seed of the woman goes all the way back to the, to the garden. In chapter 3 of Genesis, if you remember, God is pronouncing curses on the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. And so, in a way, we see this come to a climactic point in the person of Christ, right? He is the true seed of the woman, and the people are gathered together to defeat him, to destroy him, to kill him. And so, it's just interesting to think about this enmity that started in the garden and comes to a climax in Christ, but it doesn't end there either, right? We see that even these rulers in verse 5 are gathered together against Christ and his people. And so it's just, just to point out that there's opposition that's happening. And so they ask this question, by what power? And this council would have been about 70 people. So this would have been pretty intimidating. I don't know if you've ever had to, maybe you've had to give an answer to someone, or maybe it, maybe it was about Christianity, maybe it wasn't. But even one person, you know, if they ask you, hey, what do you believe, can be kind of intimidating. Imagine 70 people that were all religious rulers of the day. The, the fear that he could have felt would have been very real. And as I said, Peter um, did not hold up <laughs> in the gospel account. And so this would have been a very intimidating thing. And what adds to that intimidation is that this would have been the same court that condemned Christ. These names are mentioned in John 18. They're the same people that condemned the Lord. And so... We have to place ourselves in this scenario where Peter's not just <laughs> standing up in front of his friends. It's a group of 70 religious leaders, the same people that crucified his Lord. So this would have been scary. We can kind of picture this. And so they ask this question, by whose power? So this is not an honest question. They're not genuinely asking, hey, how did this happen? They are seeking to um, entrap the disciples in their words so that they can condemn them before the law. So we see them question. And then in verses 8 through 12, we see Peter give his answer. And I just wanted to point out again that <laughs> Peter folded like a lawn chair before these three other people. 
Um, one of them was a small girl, was a slave girl. And he's now standing before this council. It's just amazing to think about. And so he gives this answer. He says, says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter here gives a very bold answer, right? He's respectful. We see him call them rulers. He doesn't call them idiots or something like that. He's, he's respectful in a sense. He respects their office. He calls them rulers. But he gives a bold answer here. And this should cause us to ask the question, what changed with Peter, right? In the gospel accounts, folded like a lawn chair. Now he's boldly in front of 70 people confessing the Lord. So what changed? Did he, this would have been not 50 days before. I mean, it's not like years or anything. This would have been a couple months before that this events took place. Did Peter go get a seminary degree? Did he take some public speaking classes? <laughs> what changed? You know, what, what happened? And how does Peter go from a denier of the Lord to a defender of the Lord? How does he go from being intimidated by a small child, really, to instructing this whole council as to who the Christ is? And the answer that we have to give is that it's the Spirit of God, right? If we see in verse 8, it says, Peter filled with the Spirit. And um, if you want to, you can turn with me to uh, 1 Peter 4, also written by Peter, so not just this sermon, but 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14, he says this. He kind of elaborates on this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Then he says this. But if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we can say that this was the Spirit of God giving Peter power. This was not classes that he took. This was not a seminary degree. This was the Spirit of God empowering him to speak boldly. And it's amazing to think about because even from another angle, what did, what did Jesus say in the Gospels, right? Peter, Satan desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And what happens? Peter denies the Lord three times, right? And he weeps bitterly. But what happens at the end of John's gospel? Christ restores him. Three times he asks him, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. There's this sort of mirroring of this restoration of Peter that he's now commissioned to go out. And we know that it's not Peter's power or Peter's wisdom that that changed him. It was the Spirit of God and really the intercessory work of Christ praying for him and this keeping power of God. And I think that if we're honest, a lot of us can struggle with this, right? Whether it's a coworker or we don't really know how to speak to people about God. We tend to rely on our own wisdom. And so we say to ourselves, 
I need a seminary degree or I need to take classes or, you know, that's not me. But um, Peter says something, again, in chapter 3 of his epistle, he says this. He says, in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So Peter calls these people to be prepared to give a defense for their faith when someone asks you for the hope that's in you. And just taking all of Peter's words together, we can see that he's not saying to be smart. He's not saying to do this or that. He's saying, ask the Lord for help. He will give you the words to speak. So um, just some observations there. So we see Peter filled with the Spirit in verse 8. And then we see him answer. And he really sort of flips the script. He goes from the one being accused of wrong to sort of accusing these people, if you will. It's, it's, very, <laughs> it's very bold what he says. And so what does he say? He says, rulers, right? There's a sense of respect that he has for them. But he gives a very definitive answer to their question. They said, by what power? He doesn't point to himself. He says, it is by the name of Christ that this man has been healed. And then he sets up this contrast. We've seen it in a couple other messages in the Pentecost sermon, in the sermon after the healing. He'll say things like, this Christ who was the servant of God, you crucified. This holy and righteous one, you put him to death. You chose Barabbas over him. So he's, he's set up these contrasts before. And we see another one here in verse 10. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified, but whom God raised. So he's setting up this contrast between the actions of the people crucifying the Lord and the actions of God in raising him. And then we see Peter quote Psalm 118, which you saw in our call to worship this morning. And he says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So you'll notice that this is not just a quotation. He's not just quoting Psalm 118 like we did this morning. He's inserting some things. He's interpreting Psalm 118, if you will. And it should cause us to say, ask some questions, rather. Psalm 118 doesn't say anything about Jesus. It doesn't say anything about these rulers. It just says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. So why can Peter do this? And this should ask a bigger question, really. How do we understand the Old Testament? How do we understand the scriptures? And the answer that's given for a lot of people in a lot of places is we understand the Old Testament through the lens of self, right? That the Old Testament is really sort of about me. We get to place ourselves into the story. We're the hero. And the rest of the Bible is really about us in a way. I don't know if you've heard this before. A good example of this is the story of David and Goliath. Maybe some of you have heard this before. (laughs) Where... We are David, right? We're the handsome um, warrior poet, and Goliath is our financial trouble. And so the preacher's going to give you five smooth stones to defeat your financial trouble. Um, Don't get in debt, you know, whatever it is. I'm not sure what they are, but people say things like this. So what this is really doing is putting the Old Testament and filtering it through the lens of ourselves. We put ourselves in the story. We're the hero. It's all about us. And it really reduces the Bible to moralism, just good teachings about how to be good and how to do good. And this is not what Peter is doing here. What Peter is doing is he is 
looking at the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. We could call this a Christ-centered lens. And so here he is inserting Christ into Psalm 118. He sees this stone that was rejected that has now become the chief cornerstone. And he sees these rulers that are gathered against God's people as these builders that rejected the work of Christ. And so this should give us um, a sort of lens to look through the scriptures with, right? So the story of David and Goliath, it's not about us. <laughs> Christ is David. He's the better David that came to defeat our enemies, not financial trouble, but namely sin, Satan, and death. And we are in the story, but we are not the hero. We are the scared Israelites that are standing behind David, cowering in fear because we don't want to face Goliath. So just this idea of looking through the Old Testament through the lens of Christ can bring such depth and give us um, a picture of what Christ came to do, right, in defeating the works of Satan. And so um, we can see that The Old Testament is not about us. It's not even namely about Israel. It is about Christ and pointing to his person and his work. And so we see that Peter declares this clearly in chapter, in verse 12. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So that Christ has come as the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice, the temple, all these things, the perfect high priest and that there's salvation in no one else. These people don't need to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices or the temple. They need but look to Christ, the risen Lord. And so in a way, he's sort of giving them an opportunity to repent, if you will. And so we've seen the disciples arrested. We've seen them questioned. We've seen Peter's bold answer. And then we see this sort of double silence in the final verses. And it says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and common men. And they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was no more than 40 years. So we see this boldness and the indisputable miracle silence the authorities, the people in power. They can't say anything. And they get frustrated by this. And so out of fear of man and fear of losing their power, they seek to silence the disciples. And so they charge them not to speak. And Peter and John say, basically, do what you will, but we're, we cannot but speak about what Christ has done. And so we see in verse 4, like we said, 5,000 are added that even in the midst of opposition, that religious rulers and the temple authorities of the day, even amongst them, 
that the gospel is going out, that the church is growing, and that um, God is sending his spirit. And so this is Acts 4. So let's step back like we do every week, and let's try to seek to apply this book in a meaningful way. So three observations. First is that the message of the gospel will face opposition. That this is not only true for the book of Acts. Later in chapter 7, we're going to see um, Stephen stoned to death because he opposes the leader. So not every time there's opposition does it go well. Sometimes it ends in their death. So there's going to be opposition, and this is not only true in Acts, but in our day today. I'm sure we can all think of stories, whether it's in this country or in other countries where people are um, opposed for their faith. And we kind of have to ask ourselves, why is this? Why is this message of grace? (laughs) Why is there opposition to it? It's because the world doesn't like to hear that they're sinners. (laughs) They don't like to hear that there is one way of salvation. And Peter, like we read in 1 Peter 4, gives us some help here. He says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. That even if you're rejected, you are blessed. And so we can take comfort in this. And so the second observation is that Christ is the one that was rejected, but has now been made the chief cornerstone. And we see this in places, not only in Psalm 118, but in Isaiah 53, like we read before. This servant of the Lord that's despised and rejected by men. That Christ is this one that was promised that was going to be rejected. And so... We can, in a way, take comfort in that. And so, these people rejected him. So, this Psalm 118 is setting up this word picture. A stone that the builders rejected. They wanted to use it for a certain purpose. The stone didn't fit their purpose. So, they rejected it. But now this stone has been made the cornerstone. Why did they reject it? Why did they reject Christ? Why did they reject their Messiah? They wanted a political salvation. They wanted physical prosperity. They wanted the Romans to be overthrown. They wanted Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom where they would have peace and prosperity. But Christ did not come to set that up. Not yet, anyway. He came to bring a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual salvation from sin and the slavery to sin, really. And so, Christ is the one that's rejected by his people, but is ultimately accepted by God. And it just made me think of 1 Corinthians 1. Um, It's just amazing what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verse 22. He says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of men. It's just amazing that Christ crucified is the power of God. It's not the convincingness of the message. It's not the clarity of the messenger. It is the cross of Christ that has power. And this is amazing to think about because I think so often we rely on ourselves. We rely on our own ability. We rely on our own words. Christ himself, Christ crucified, is the message that has power. And so thirdly, we see this, that this should give us confidence. 
in our weakness. This should give us confidence in our weakness. Um, that it is not about confidence in ourselves, right? Our ability, it is in the power of God. We see, we see Peter filled with the Spirit. He's relying on the Spirit to give him these words. And he's not relying on his own ability. And so, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are broken clay pots. We are sinful people. We're not perfect. And we are not, we can think that we are not great messengers of this truth, right? That we're fallen, that we're sinful. But he says that these are the very messages that show forth the glory of God. And that it is in the foolishness of the message, right? It says that Greeks see this message as foolishness. Jews stumble over it. But it is the power of God. So we can rely on God and we can rely on His Spirit. And that this ultimately gives all the glory to God. If it was about us, it would give glory to us, right? If it was about how well we were doing things, how well we were um, seeking the Lord, it would give glory to us. But it is ultimately giving glory to God. So... So the gospel will face opposition. Christ is the one that was rejected, but has now made the cornerstone. And this should give us confidence in our weakness. And so we can see that the Father has sent the Son, accomplished the work of redemption. The Spirit has come, not only illuminating the Scripture to us, applying the work of salvation, sanctifying us, and we can take joy in this triune work of God. And that even in our weakness, in our sin, in our suffering, that God will be exalted and his gospel will go out. So, will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, for this bold proclamation from Peter that that you are the stone that was rejected, that is still being rejected by the world, but that did not keep you from being exalted to the right hand of the Father where you have been um, chosen as the chief cornerstone and the only name of salvation by which we must be saved. So would you give us confidence this morning, not in our ability to save ourselves, to um, even communicate the truth perfectly, but would you help us to rely on Christ, not only for our salvation, but for the propagation of the truth. Would you help us to trust in him this morning? In your name we pray. You'll stand, I think we're going to sing Psalm 23. So, so for some of you, we haven't maybe sang Psalm 23 with you here yet. We're going to be singing Psalm 23 to the tune of Amazing Grace. So just think, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Hopefully it'll catch on.
You want to sing with me the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Benediction is from number six. A blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Grace and peace as you go from here.